It's called um, Fast Food Nation. Some of you guys are familiar with this book that came out. I remember um, seeing a quote from this book where Christopher Reeves, um, post-surgery, uh, post-accident, came and spoke at this uh, really sort of a motivational um, seminar. And I'm going to read a little excerpt from the book about what Christopher Reeves, the former Superman, uh, then quadriplegic, has to say to this crowd of entrepreneurs and business people. Here's, here's the, the picture that's painted in Fast Food Nation by Eric Schuller. As the loudspeakers play the theme song from Chariots of Fire, Rob Lowe wheels Christopher Reeves on stage. The crowd wildly applauds. Reeves' handsome face is framed by longish gray hair. A respirator tube extends from the back of his blue sweatshirt to a square box on his wheelchair. Reeves describes how it once felt to lie in a hospital bed at 2 o'clock in the morning, alone and unable to move, and thinking that daylight would never come. His voice is clear and strong, but he needs to pause for breath after every few words. He thanks the crowd for its support and confesses that their warm response is one of the reasons that he appears at these events. It helps to keep his spirits up, he says. He donates the speaking fees to groups that conduct spinal cord research. I've had to leave the physical world, Reeves says. A stillness falls upon the arena. The place is silent. By the time I was 24, I was making millions, he continues. I was pretty pleased with myself. I was selfish, and I neglected my family. Since my accident, I've been realizing that success means something quite different. Members of the audience start to tear up. They start to cry. I see people who achieve these conventional goals, he says in a mild and even tone, but none of them matter. None of them matter. So the question is, is he right? Is it, is it true that those conventional goals of career and building wealth and making a name for yourself, is it true that those really don't matter? That's what he was saying. Um, let's find out what Jesus has to say about this issue particularly of wealth. Follow along with me, if you will, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Here's what Jesus says. This is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy... Your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have read through the Sermon on the Mount before. It's in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. But when you read it, you at least I read it, I come to a point, I get about, you know, 20, 30 verses in, and I'm like, I can't do any of this. This is this is all beyond me. It's all too hard. Let me let me give a couple qualifications though before we jump into this. Um, one of the qualifications I want to make is that all things that God has created are good, right? And so wealth isn't a bad thing, right? Food isn't a bad thing, work isn't a bad thing, sexuality isn't a bad thing. The issue is What's most important to you in life? That's really the issue. The issue is, what's the most important thing to you? The issue for Jesus is always the same. It's always about your heart. Because it's out of your heart 
that you speak, and it's out of your heart that you feel, and it's out of, the, out of your heart that you make decisions about the way that you live life. So let's particularly take a look at what Jesus, I think, means in the above passage. Now, the, the first point that I'm going to make that I think Jesus is making is this, is that earthly wealth is fleeting, heavenly wealth is eternal, and ultimately your heart will follow the trajectory of your wealth. Earthly wealth is fleeting, heavenly wealth is eternal, and ultimately your heart will follow the trajectory of your wealth. So let's start there with that first clause, earthly wealth is fleeting. Let's look at verse 19. Jesus says this, do not store up for yourselves treasures. Now here's an interesting little thing. Jesus does this occasionally where he uses a word that one means maybe two different things. And the, the word here that's used for treasure does uh, ultimately mean sort of like this this, uh, this lockbox that you put wealth into, but it's also the same word that's used for casket. And I don't think that's unintentional that Jesus is saying that. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin, that word can be interpreted rust, corrosion, rot, or feeding ones, where vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So in the ancient Near East, what would happen is that there weren't banks, right? You couldn't go to ing.com or usaa.com and put your wealth or your money. And so people would take their money, their possessions, and they would put their possessions in a lockbox, and then they would bury it somewhere in their home, usually beneath the floor. But the problem is, is that a fire or a flood or thieves or corrosion could take it away all in just a split second, all in a moment. In fact, what's interesting is in Pompeii, you know, Mount Vesuvius erupted, erupted and dumped layers and layers of ash upon Pompeii, and as a result, preserved the city. But as they've gone in, archaeologists have gone in, and they've excavated these houses, they've found many different homes that would have this very thing. They would have a lockbox beneath the floor, and in that lockbox would be all sorts of treasure, treasures that those people had set aside and preserved. Unfortunately, the treasure has survived, but needless to say, the people of Pompeii did not survive. Shakespeare said this, I think I'm not a big Shakespeare fan, but if Claire Pierce is here today, I'll do this in honor of you. Uh, Shakespeare said this, he said, if thou art rich, thou art poor. For like an ass whose back with ingots bows, thou bearest thy heavenly riches but a journey. In other words, you're just taking that money for a journey. And the final clause is, and death unloads thee. In other words, death is waiting at the end to take that burden of wealth off of your back. What Shakespeare, what the people of Pompeii, and what most of us will realize sooner, frankly, rather than later, is that you cannot take your wealth with you. It will not last. Can't take it with you, will not last. Steve Jobs, uh, you know, if you guys remember the CEO of Apple, really the, the person that was in charge of taking Apple from this little garage company to being, you know, arguably one of the largest, if not the largest technology companies in the world, in an article, in the New York Times not too long ago by Steve Lohr, the article is called Steve Jobs Believes in Pursuing What Lasts. Steve Jobs um, says this. I'm going to read just this section of the article. Mr. Jobs made a lot of money over the years for himself and for Apple shareholders, but money never seemed to be his principal motivation. If you guys have read anything about Steve Jobs before, you know he was driven by a desire for perfection, not for money. One day in the late 1990s, Mr. Jobs and I were walking near his home in Palo Alto, Internet stocks were getting bubbly at the time, and Mr. Jobs spoke of the proliferation of startups with so many young entrepreneurs focused on an exit strategy, selling their companies for a quick and hefty profit. And listen to what Jobs says. It's such a small ambition 
and sad, really, Mr. Jobs said. They should want to build something, something that lasts. Isn't that interesting? Is he real? I know, granted, he had amazing wealth, and so it's very easy for somebody with amazing wealth to be able to say, you can't take it with you. You need to do something that lasts. You need to do something that matters. But the question is, what does actually matter? What really does last? Jesus tells us in the next verse. He says that heavenly wealth is eternal. So look at verse 20. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. So the question, of course, then is, well, what is heavenly wealth? How can you, how can you store that up, assuming that's a real thing? And in the immediate context, again, we're in Matthew chapter 6 here, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has already used three examples of things that people want to get rewarded for. He uses the examples of praying, fasting, and giving. Now, if you remember, he's talking to this mixed crowd. He, the disciples are sort of at his feet, and then there's broader crowds, but there are Pharisees there. And one of the things that Jesus does at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6, he says, look, if you pray so that you'll be rewarded and people will think you're great because of your public prayers, which is a, basically an ancient Near Eastern form of virtue signaling, then you've already received your reward in the here and now. Don't expect God to reward you later. He then uses the example of fasting. He says, if you fast, again, as a virtue signaling sort of way of living life, I'm so spiritual, I'm so religious. Well, guess what? If you're doing that to please other people, you've gotten your reward. But don't expect God to reward you for that in heaven. And then giving. He says, if you give so that people will think you're such a great person, then again, you've received your reward here on earth, but not in heaven. The flip side of that is that Jesus, I think, would argue is that praying, fasting, and giving, if they're done with integrity and pure motives, really are things that God rewards. What else does God reward? Matthew chapter 25, Jesus uses a, a story to talk about what he values and what uh, builds up heavenly wealth. He says this. This is not going to be on the screen, so just follow along and do well. There is a picture of sheep and goats, though. Matthew 25, verse 31 says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, that he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And listen again to the, to the next section here. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did... To one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me, right? And so here's what's interesting. It seems that what Jesus is saying here is that what matters is praying and, and fasting and giving and caring for other people. You know, as a pastor, I've, had, I've been privileged to have numbers of conversations with people as they approach death um, and as they think about dying. And inevitably, people express regrets. It's really a constant theme. And the most common regrets seem to be the following things. Uh, they frequently say, I wish that I had spent less time working, right? I mean, already as a dad, I can look back at various portions of my life 
and I can look back and be like, ooh, man, I wish that I hadn't been so committed to my work. I wish I'd been more committed to God and to my family. The second thing that people frequently regret or express remorse about is they wish they had spent more time with their children, right? There's just story after story of people who say, man, I wish I would have poured my life and my time into my kids more. Another one is that people say they wish they had spent more time working on their marriage, or they say, I wish I had spent uh, my energy making peace with friends or with family. And intuitively, what we see in all of these declarations of remorse and regret and sadness is that relationships are what really matter, right? They're what's actually very eternal. Relationships with God and relationships with our fellow human beings are what matter the most in life, and it appears that they matter most in death. In God's economy, the same thing seems to be true. And Jesus even takes it a step further here in Matthew 25, where he says loving others is actually equivalent to loving him, and that the care that we've shown to others will be rewarded in heaven. Make sense? So again, earthly wealth, Jesus says, is actually fleeting. You can't take it with you. Heavenly wealth, however, is eternal and lasts, right? When we love others well, when we love the Lord well, when we bring peace and wholeness to this earth, that actually matters. And Jesus makes one other comment here at the end of verse 21. He says, the last piece here is that your heart will actually follow the trajectory of your wealth. There's a sense in which it's a diagnostic in case people are kind of wondering, like, where's my heart? You know, where am I on this trajectory? And Jesus says, well, here's the way you can tell is that your heart will follow your wealth. Jesus' wisdom here is pretty remarkable. In fact, this statement uh, that for where your treasure is your heart be also sounds like something that Susie Orman would say or Dave Ramsey or Clark Howard would say. And in essence, what Jesus is saying is that if you want to know what really matters to you in life, look at where your money is going because that's where your heart really is. Now, there's a, the founding pastor of Perimeter Church in Atlanta, which is where um, Chris and I spent a couple years before we came to Rome. The founding pastor, Randy Pope, I remember him telling the story about this man in, in their church. And he said this guy was, you know, super successful businessman, very, very wealthy, great kids, great family. Um, and he, I remember Randy particularly saying that this uh, man's daughter was sort of his prized possession. She was sort of the apple of his eye. And Randy had said, for years I was trying to get this guy plugged into a discipleship group, but the way that Randy described it is that he had one foot in the world and one foot in the church, sort of, you know, sort of straddling the two. And uh, and he said that um, his, again, his daughter, who's the apple of his eye, ended up graduating from high school and going to Alabama, where she was a cheerleader for Alabama. And he said this guy, you know, was just so proud of his daughter for all of her successes and all that she was. And again, he said that he was sort of straddling one foot in the world, one foot in heaven. And he said that uh, his daughter, this man's daughter, was driving back um, during after the second semester of her freshman year and was involved in a car wreck. She was killed, just obviously, as you can imagine, just devastating. And he said that he you know, walked through this man with this process because this thing that he arguably loved more than anything else was now gone, his daughter. And so Randy said, I watched him and was sort of looking at you know, what was going to happen to him. How was he going to navigate this loss? And what Randy said was very interesting. He said all of a sudden this man realized that if I believe that this whole Christianity thing is true, then the person who means the most to me is in heaven with Jesus, and that's where I want to be. And Randy made the point of saying he took his one foot that had been firmly planted in the world, and he put it next to his other foot that was firmly planted in eternity, and he gave his life ultimately 
to following God. It's a, a great picture, right? So the question I think for all of us in this room this morning is where is our treasure? Or where's your heart? Maybe is another way of asking it. You can get there in two different ways. Is your treasure in your car? Maybe maybe you love your car. <laughs> is your treasure in your house, right? Maybe, you, maybe that's really where your heart is. Is your treasure in your phone? Right? Is that where you spend the vast majority of your time and mental energy and money and effort? Is your heart in your business or in your clothes? Is it in your retirement account? Or maybe is your heart and treasure ultimately in your freedom? Invest your wealth in eternity and your heart will live in the light of heaven. Invest your wealth in earth and your heart will dwindle in the dusk of earth. So Jesus makes this point. Earthly wealth is fleeting. Heavenly wealth is eternal, and ultimately, your heart is going to follow the trajectory of your wealth. And then he goes on to make a second point. He says this. He says, whatever you're looking for in the external world will determine the health of your internal world. It's almost like Jesus is giving these people these diagnostics to sort of figure out where am I? Here's what verses 22 and verse 23 say. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So at this point, Jesus moves from our hearts to our eyes. And in the same way that our hearts are affected by where we place our treasure, our internal, emotional, and spiritual health is greatly determined by what we're looking for or by what we're looking at. So there's actually an interesting philosophical principle that I read about just recently. Those of you who know me love know that I love to read um, psychology. And there's this psychological tenet that says this. You always see what you're looking for. right? You always see what you're looking for. And so as I was reading this author, he used the example of, uh, of this experiment that frequently is, is done on college campuses or even on TV shows like Brain Games. And the experiment is this. They'll take you know, ten different people and they'll put them on a, on a stage. And they'll tell the audience, whether it's a television audience or a live audience, they'll say, hey, these 10 people are going to be throwing the ball back and forth as quickly as possible. And we want you to count how many times they actually throw the ball back and forth. And at the end of a you know, minute or two minutes, we're going to pull the audience and find out how many times the ball was thrown back and forth and caught. And so they you know, go through this experiment. And uh, what the crowd doesn't know, what the television audience doesn't know, is they're going to take a person dressed in a gorilla suit and they're going to walk them across the back of the stage, right? And so the people in the front of the stage are throwing the ball back and forth. And uh, afterwards, the person comes out to the front. And they go, "Hey, uh, what did you guys see up on stage?" And you know, everybody before answers the question. But the ball was thrown 17 times. Or it was thrown 32 times. Or it was thrown this. And then he asks the crowd. He's like, "How many of you saw something else unusual make it go, make its way across the stage?" And like out of a crowd of 100 people, only one or two people are able to say, "There was a guy in a gorilla suit." Because they weren't looking for a guy in a gorilla suit. They were looking to see how many times that ball was thrown back and forth. And the point is, psychologically, and Jesus, I think, is arguing spiritually, is you always actually end up seeing what you're looking for, right? What you see, what you look at, determines what you see. So if you as a person are constantly looking for threats, you'll see threats everywhere, right? Just ask the mom of a small child. That outlet, the glass table, the car in the parking lot. What do you think that person is seeing all the time as threats? Or if you're constantly looking for oppression and victimization, you'll see it all the time because it's there. It's there to be seen. If you're constantly looking for wealth, you'll always be looking for ways 
to protect that wealth or ways to increase that wealth. Or unfortunately, oftentimes you'll be looking way for ways to use other people to make your wealth greater to achieve a goal of creating more treasure. That's why throughout mythology, there's always this picture of a dragon and dragons hoard wealth, right? They, they sit in these piles of gold coins and jewels and treasure. And what the dragons ultimately become is these beasts that sit upon these mounds of treasure and they guard that treasure against anyone who possibly might try to steal any of it. It's an interesting picture, not just of dragons and hoarding wealth, but of humans and hoarding wealth and what wealth can actually turn us into. Or if you're constantly looking for other people to try to take advantage of you, you're going to see them everywhere. Chris and I lived with a family in St. Louis who were worth over $50 million. We lived in their garage apartment, and Krista cleaned the house, and I did yard work for them. But it's so interesting because as we got to know them, um, they were probably in their mid-60s, but they were so incredibly uh, paranoid that people were going to try to steal their wealth, and probably people would have tried to steal their wealth, but it even extended to Krista and I. And what was so funny is as a young couple, Krista and I couldn't have cared less about how much money we had. I think our first year of marriage, we made, what, $5,800 or something, and we thought we were rolling, you know. But the point is, is that what you're looking at and what you're looking for ultimately changes your internal world. Some of you know the story of Ted Bundy, this uh, fellow who was a, a mass murderer. He was interviewed by James Dobson, and there's a very interesting quote that he gave um, just literally a couple days before he went on, uh, was, was put to death. Here's what he says. He says, I've lived in prison for a long time now, and I've met a ton of men who are motivated to commit violence just like me, and without exception, every one of them was deeply involved with pornography. Without question, without exception, deeply influenced and consumed by addiction to pornography. And so lust dehumanizes another person, turns another person into a commodity, and then uh, that person will view other people um, as something to be consumed, something to be used. It turns their inner world into a dark Dark places. So there's example after example after example of what you see, what you look for, impacting your inner world negatively. That which captures your gaze will undoubtedly impact uh, and even form your inner world negatively or positively. Right? What about the positive side of what you're looking at? Here's what Matthew says, but Jesus says in Matthew 6. Again, this is the same passage of scripture that we're in right now. He teaches the disciples how to pray, and in teaching them how to pray, what he's doing is he's basically saying, you look at the world this way, and I'm going to change your gaze by praying this prayer so that you look at the world this way, and it's going to change your inner being. So the prayer that Jesus teaches them is this, our Father in heaven. And the first thing Jesus does is say, look, you got to change the way that you see God. Right? He's not this angry guy with uh, you know, long flowing hair and a hammer waiting to crush you, but he's like a good father, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. In other words, Shift the way that you see the world so you see the world um, through the lens of doing what you can do to make God's name holy. Your kingdom come. You know, so many of us are building our kingdoms, and this prayer prays us out of our kingdoms into saying, all right, what do I need to do in order to, to see God's kingdom come? Your will be done, not mine, on earth as is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Absolutely. Uh, you need physical things. Let God provide those for you. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus basically says, look to seek forgiveness from God and maybe more importantly, extend forgiveness to other people who have uh, sinned against you. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
In other words, what Jesus was doing is he was saying, train yourself, pray yourself into seeing your existence to bring the kingdom of God, to pray that the kingdom of God would come in this world that we live in. I think what Jesus is saying here is that what you look at or look for will determine what you see and how you see. And then what you see will determine the state of your inner being, darkness or light. And you know the difference, right? You know the difference about your heart. And you probably know the difference between what you see in other people's hearts as well. If you're constantly looking to please people, your whole inner world will be focused on pleasing people instead of God. And that is paralyzing. Trust me, I know. If you're looking to your wealth to save you, protect you, and comfort you, you'll become a person who's focused on money more than on relationships. We've all seen where that leads. It's not good. If, however, you're looking for ways to see God's kingdom come, then you'll be focused on bringing healing to a suffering and broken world, and your inner world will actually end up becoming a place of light and of goodness and of peace. Right? Here's what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says, if you read history you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. In other words, the Christians that were the most valuable were the ones that were the most aware of eternity. They were the most aware of the next world. He says this, It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. So what Jesus is saying again in this passage is that earthly wealth is fleeting. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's fleeting. Heavenly wealth is eternal, and ultimately your heart will follow the trajectory of your wealth. And then the next point was whatever you're looking for in this external world will determine the health of your internal world. Final point that Jesus makes in this passage is in verse 24. He says this, and this is all connected. No one can serve or slave for two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't have two masters at the same time. Jesus is addressing what he understands to be the truth. We try to balance our allegiance to wealth and our allegiance to God. We try to have our cake and eat it too. We try to, uh, ultimately, Jesus states, however, that eventually one or the other will win out. Either God becomes a genie in a bottle to serve your wealth, or your wealth becomes a tool to serve God and to focus on his eternal heavenly kingdom, right, and your fellow man. And ultimately, we have to make a decision between the two, because if we don't, the decision will be made for us. Uh, we can't serve two masters. When I was in high school, I think I might have been a freshman, and my sister Christy was a senior. Um, I was sitting on the back porch at our house one day, and we are hanging out, and this uh, one guy named Jenny Gillespie showed up on the back porch. He's like, hey, is Christy here? And I was like, oh, yeah, she's inside. I'll get her. And so, you know, I knocked, I ran inside and got Christy, and she sort of hung out on the back porch with Jimmy for a second. While I was inside, there was a, a doorbell ring on the front porch. And I was like, huh, whatever. I went to the front porch, and it was a guy named, uh, let me get this name right, John Grissom, I believe. Anyway, and so this was another guy that was coming to see my sister. He rang the front doorbell while Jenny Gillespie was in the back. Very awkward situation, right? In fact, I mean, it's a true story. It really happened. And so as a 14-year-old or whatever, I realized the gravity of the situation. There are two guys, both of here, my sister. No kidding. A few minutes later, Mark, I can't remember his name, Mark somebody else, I'll say Mark Taylor, showed up at the same time. There were three guys at our house to see my, Chris, my sister Christy at the same time. Now you tell me, 
do you think she was able to sort of date all three of those guys at once, or do you think she finally had to make a decision? Very awkward, by the way. And the answer is that she ended up choosing one of them and having to tell the others no. And that's, again, very much Jesus' point here. Again, the issue isn't the rightness or wrongness of wealth. Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to save money for college or for retirement or that it's wrong to have nice clothes or a nice car. I really don't think that's what he's saying at all. What Jesus wants is what God wants, your heart. That's really the issue here, is where is your heart? Is your heart with him, or is your heart ultimately with building your own kingdom? And part of what Jesus wants to do is he wants to protect you from investing in things that will ultimately leave you unsatisfied and hollow and empty. And you know very well what those things are. Jesus knows that you need a home and clothes and food and all of those things. But he also needs to, knows that the thing that you need most is to focus on him and his kingdom. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 16, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, all those things will be added unto you. Now, let me really quickly say this. What about Jesus? Every now and then I end a sermon by going, hey, where was Jesus in that whole thing? You know, how, in what way is he our hope? Christianity is in part following Jesus, following his example, but it's more than that. It's remembering that our hope is not in our ability to follow him, but it's in him. It's that he did what we couldn't do, and that his obedience is then credited or substituted on our record for our disobedience. That's the miracle of Christianity. And it doesn't take me long to realize that I have not trusted God perfectly with my wealth, if that's what you could call it. But Jesus did. His treasure was clearly in heaven with his heavenly father. It doesn't take me long to realize that I've often used my influence and my power to try to build my own kingdom, right? But Jesus didn't. Jesus used his influence and his power to pray and to work towards his father's kingdom. It doesn't take me long to realize that more often than not, my eyes are furtively watching others in the hope that they will approve me or validate me, not Jesus. His eyes were firmly fixed upon his father who said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. The beauty of the gospel is that I don't ever get what I deserve. I get what Jesus deserves. I get to hear God say to me, well done, good and faithful servant, even when I fall far short of what God has asked me to do and who he's asked me to be. So what will my response be to that grace? What will your response be to that grace? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that uh, you don't ever leave us in darkness, but rather you... Uh, Give us the ability to, um, to see the world.